Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Luke Stutters. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just want to shout out, go check out devinfluencers.com if you're looking to be a dev influencer. I guess that's pretty straightforward. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Valentino Stoll. Valentino, do you want to introduce yourself? Let everybody know why you're awesome and all that good stuff? Say there, sure. I'm a software engineer at Doximity. I've been working there for quite some time now. I've been working on Ruby quite a long time, and it's kind of my go-to crutch of a language, if you will. But I, I really enjoy uh, hacking away on embedded systems with Ruby. That's been my my latest craze. And, you know, I, I've really been digging deep into the Ruby core library and kind of just exploring it. And uh, it's really not that scary. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of make people a little, make it a little more approachable for people and uh, hopefully get some more contributors out of it, including myself. Nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So we have you on the docket to talk about the hidden gems of Ruby's IRB. But before we dive into that, you said embedded systems with Ruby. So are you using, what is it, MRuby for that? Or for some projects I have, primarily I've been working on a Raspberry Pi. I'm no expert. Uh So I picked up one of those starter kits that has a, a bajillion tiny little components to work with and slowly chipping away at converting some Python examples. <laughs> to prepare for this episode, I also bought a uh, collection of Raspberry Pi related devices. Oh, there so you I go. I too could code along with Valentino's Ruby <laughs> guide. And uh, as he says, the Python Python is infested, absolutely yeah. infested the Raspberry Pi ecosystem. There's Python everywhere and trying to trying to root it out trying to root it out of your hardware getting getting a kind of ruby pitchfork and digging all of a python out of the examples is a really uh, fantastic work so thank you very much for doing that code by code we'll uh, make it through <laughs> gross python anyway so yeah we'll we'll send people over to your uh, raspberry pi ruby stuff because that that that's just cool stuff in fact we should just get you back to to nerd out with that on <laughs> anyway sure but yeah let, let's talk about irb because it's a tool that we kind of all go to whether we realize that it's the rails console kind of runs on top of irb or whether we just run it ourselves and then run stuff in it why don't we kind of go with kind of a high level overview of what irb is for people who are just getting into ruby and then we can just assume that people know it and use it and we can dive into okay stuff you didn't know about right Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, IRBs, 
basically just a REPL. You give it input and it'll evaluate the Ruby that you give it, analyze the syntax of it, and then directly show you the output for whatever that it is that you give it. Mm -hmm. So people work in REPLs all the time. Uh, if you open up any console, that's a REPL in a, a bash shell, basically. But R Ruby's IRB kind of has a hierarchy to it that you know breaks it all the different pieces of it into little modules that then pipe it through as it's going through and evaluating just the strings that you're giving it. And it can, does that in real time. And it does that basically in what they call a session and wraps that in a context and then evaluates it inside of a binding, which is really the underpinnings of Ruby, Ruby's own core evaluation is the binding object. Uh, and then through the binding, it can basically compile Ruby on the fly into, you know, low level code and do whatever it is that you tell it to do. You know, IRB, I, it, it's kind of like what gets you really into Ruby, right? You mm -hmm. go and you're, you're trying to learn a new, like try and learn any new language, even JavaScript as an example, you'll go and what do you do is you open up the JavaScript console and you try and play around and move elements around or, you know, <laughs> try and be the first to purchase a pair of sneakers or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, what learning Ruby is so easy. You don't do the same thing. You open up an IRB session and then you just type anything that you want and you can play around with the language. It's, it's pretty powerful. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I don't want to go too deep into you know, what it is, and you kind of uh, connected the dots, I guess, on how it evaluates the code. But but I, I'm always looking for kind of the, the neat tricks, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so let's start there. And then if we have time, we can come back around to internals or other things that you learned while you dove into this. Sure. So so what are the neat tricks? Like what what were the <laughs> the things that you didn't know it did that it, that it does? So coming into this, definitely the customization of the prompt itself. So I believe it was, uh, it was Matt Swanson that I discovered the uh, you know customization of the prompt for when you're in a production server that you could just signal, hey, this is a different server than your development console. You might want to be careful what you write in here. And from there, it kind of just exploded into, okay, well, what else is in this customization? And you know, you open up your, you find out, you start you start with the IRBRC as like your starting point and it kind of leads you into the rabbit hole of customization and what i realized is that you can basically make this file that will evaluate anytime you open up irb and do whatever you want with it uh, so anytime you're trying to you know open up a specific set of code in a specific context you can make a custom IRB file for whatever that context might be. So that was probably my biggest, you know, aha moment. Is and as an example, what we eventually ended up doing, Doximity, was making a a special Rails console that tagged the system internally to say, hey, any changes made to the database, you know, make sure they're attributed to whoever the current user is. So. We implemented that and then allowed, you know, full auditing for whatever user was logged into the system, you know, with just a, a simple little Rails customization. Gotcha. 
So so then we know, you know, John is a witch. He turned me into a newt, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I got I got better. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you can see where that change happened, right? And you can go yep. and you can reverse it or go slap somebody's hand or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, more for accountability than anything else. You say, hey, you know, what were you doing during this change? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need to audit the specific scenario of a change so that you can go and make sure it didn't affect anything else, you know, as a side effect. Yeah, makes sense. Do either of you, uh, Luke or John, use a custom I, what is it, IRBRC? I didn't even know it existed. Is this the same thing as Pry? Because I use Pry all the time. I know, I know <laughs> it's not, but, but, but I feel like a question for me. I, I don't mean, know. I use, is, go ahead. Is IRB Pry? No. <laughs> Short answer, no. I mean, there's a kind of a discrepancy to here, and it's two worlds colliding where somebody mm-hmm. made a better IRB at one point, and now kind of the features of Pry are sneaking into the native Ruby IRB. Which and is that, awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, they're very, they're, they're completely different things at this point. Yeah. What, what about the Rails console then? It It's built on top of IRB, right? Yes, Rails Rails console is wrapped on IRB. Unless so, you install Rails Pry and then you hook into IRB. Pry. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it Pry has a Pry RC, doesn't it? That it you, does. Yep. Yeah. So, so what does Rails do in order to uh, torture or otherwise modify IRB? I haven't looked into it. <laughs> you haven't looked at that. Okay. I, no. I don't know that it's torturing it. My my understanding. So so you know obviously if I'm wrong, let me let us know. But my understanding is that most of what Rails is doing with its shell is just loading a bunch of Rails files. Basically, mm-hmm. you're just loading your environment. Right. So you're adding to the context. Yeah. I mean, if you open an IRB shell, right? Even if you open it in your Rails directory, you don't have all those files loaded. But if you open your Rails console, it's already just like if you're running a Rails server, preloaded everything and run the initializers and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. So as as far as like what Rails is doing, it's probably just a elaborate IRB RC. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause anything you have in your IRBC will be in the context of whatever the is ends up being the IRB session you're in. So when you do Rails C, I imagine it just loads the application and makes, you know, a few things available to the terminal, like, you know, the reload command or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the reload can't command is just part of Rails anyway. So, yeah, I mean, that, that yeah, makes sense that, that that would be in there. Yeah, Are so there I mean, that's things? a that's kind of the value of the IRBC too, is like you could define methods in there that do whatever you want. So, you know, Rails has the customizations with a bunch of methods that it'll inject into the session and, you know, give you that available. So I, I have some myself, which will, will give me me <laughs> as an example. Mm-hmm. So then I have a uh, who am I, right. basically, that gives you access to your current user's name and, you know, a bunch of related ones to that. See, and now I want to create an evil IRBRC that like <laughs> redefines common methods <laughs> off of kernel. I mean, what you could do is you can make your own input method that then uh-huh. remaps all of the characters. So as you're typing, it'll output a different character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds, sounds like my my Apple butterfly keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> Already implemented in hardware. That's what John, John is saying. 
it's all good. It's, it's yeah, my it works. Again. My butterfly keyboard. It didn't do that. It was just p p p p p p p p p p p. You know. Yep. I just tapped yeah. it once. So, all right. So I have this really sweet. So, so first of all, I've actually done the auditing thing, right? We did do it through an IRBRC or whatever. We uh, we did it differently or whatever. So that totally makes sense to me. But you guys, you guys implemented that through your IRBRC. Not technically the IRBRC. We have a custom initializer for Rails itself that will just make some modifications to the Rails console itself and then start up uh, kind of call super on it. Okay. So so we're just talking about extensions here to our environment. All right. Yep. No worries. No worries. So this kind of environment automation and warning is kind of really important for you because you're dealing with medical data and things. So it's kind of really important that you don't get it wrong. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, the customization of the prompt too is just hugely helpful, especially when you have to jump contacts through many servers. So we have at Doximity, a series of staging servers that are separate from development, right? So that we can add quality control and test out a lot of our changes. And then we have several production servers that are, you know, are all different. Uh, and it's nice to see them labeled so you know instantly, especially if you have a bunch of different terminal windows open, right, that all have an IRB session in it. You don't want to get confused about which one you're in. Right. Of course, uh, I've worked at a lot of places that don't even give you that kind of access to, to the production systems to even be able to run IRB, right? I mean, you might, your your ops people might be able to do it, right? And you might be able to give them specific instructions or check in a rake task or something that will do with the work and then they can run the rake task for you. But yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we don't all have access <laughs> and right. uh, it's, it's certainly limited. But somebody's got to log in when That's all true. the systems go down. Yeah. And it's Friday afternoon and everybody's trying <laughs> to do some stuff. Like, just, it just happens, you know? Yeah, this is the kind True. of double-edged problem of this your sphere is because not only does it have to be really high security, but it also has to be high availability because the code is literally saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. All right. So we talked about some stuff that's coming over from Pry. I I actually I'm like super interested because as a very heavy user of Pride basically since I discovered it like I don't know I don't even remember because I don't remember my life before Pride to be frank what are the are you awesome hijacking features? this IRB talk with Pride <laughs> I mean okay all right there are there are times when I load up IRB right and it, it's primarily when either I'm writing like a Ruby script right so I don't have a Rails thing going on right and mm -hmm. You know, and I just want to load something up really fast. Or if I'm working on a very large rail system that takes forever to load and I just want to test out something really fast. So then I just like load up IRB, require one or two files and do a thing and then exit. Right. And in both of those instances, one of the first things that I often do is I, I type IRB and then I go require pry. <laughs> so I have not lived without pry for a very long time. So what are some of the cool features that? that we'll get over if you know them sure i know a couple <laughs> the i mean a lot of these are like brand new like in rails 3 but they there was just merged a uh, a pry like ls command 
So you can basically list all the methods on a particular object, as an example. I imagine the next step to that would be, you know, the CD command to pry, where you can, you know, basically move into the object. And you can kind of already do that with IRB, because you can run IRB on any Ruby object and enter inside of the context of it. So if you make an instance of something and you IRB that instance, then you're in the context of the instance. Um, and you could do the same with the class, pretty much any, you know, object in Ruby. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you go inside the objects? Sure. So when you're in the IRB console itself, you just run IRB and then the, the object. So if you did, oh, cool. you know, string new and you just said IRB string new, you can enter inside the instance of a string and play with all the methods like that. You don't have to do the strings object name as a variable and then dot whatever. You just enter the method. Uh, so it's kind of a fun way to explore the object and without having to, you know, run a bunch of chained methods. You can get it. You know how smart. Do you know how smart I'm going to look at work tomorrow? <laughs> I didn't know that. I did not know that. I didn't either. Yeah. And I mean, another, another cool thing, um, which Pry gives that maybe you just don't know about IRB is you get a lot of context from the source code just using the method method, right? So when you say, you know, method and then colon some, the name of some method, uh, it returns a special Ruby object that describes what the method is, what it does, the source location. And you could pull all that information to open up a new, you know, I use Vim as my command or as my editor. So I, I often, well, I'll, I'll have a uh, special, you know, method in my IRBRC that allows me to open a Vim, you know, editor with whatever the source location is for the method that I'm interested in, in the context of an IRB session. So it ends up, you know, being a, a you can open up any editor. It can be, doesn't have to be Vim. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but yep. no, that makes sense. That that sounds really handy. Yep. So the only the only yeah one of the main reasons that I like Pry is actually this, but it's not because uh, you just use show desk source, right? Right. But it, it's mostly because it's complicated to remember all the steps that you have to do, right? To grab the method as an object, then call you know source location or whatever. The other the other thing that's an issue here is that Pry actually does a reasonably good job now. It didn't used to, but it does a reasonably good job of showing me like all the dynamic stuff that goes on when I like prepend eight things into which, you know, is just going to cause problems anyway. But, you know, if I'm overriding my method a million times in weird, odd ways, uh, things can get weird. So, yeah. Anyway, awesome. I don't know if anybody else has, has looked in and not to plug pry again, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but the. There's actually a project called Ruby Jard that combines Pry with Bybug, and it's pretty incredible. You you basically can do just like you can, you know, binding.irb in your source code or, you know, Pry in your source code. You can do a Jard in your source code. And when it stops the execution, it has this really beautiful kind of split pane debugging session where it shows you the current line in context but also shows you some lower level like definitions within that context. And it's, it's pretty wild. I definitely recommend people check that out. I've been using that on a couple projects as well. 
But IRB is still my go-to for, you know, just testing out random Ruby files. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw that in Ruby Weekly, and I just have been slow to get around to looking at it. But I like pretty things, so I'm we'll be checking it out. Yeah, it's really great. All right. So some sweet, uh, uh, any other like things that are coming over so we can wrap up that part? Sure. Yeah. Let's see. From from Pry itself, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I do know that they that IRB itself has introduced kind of uh, some tracing mechanisms and uh, measure utility to make it easy to you know trace the execution of specific method calls uh, while you're going through, as well as you know processing time. So I actually do that for a lot of just quick performance testing of, you know, uh, will this array method lookup work faster than this one in this context? You know, just turn on the measuring processor and just check how fast it runs with each case. Uh, that's the thing that comes with Ruby 3, right? Specifically? Yep. Yeah, I believe so. So okay, that's just... really nice interface because it just does it for you after you turn it on. Yep. So you type measure and then anything you run from your IRB or whatever after that gets measured. Yeah, and it's line by line measuring too. So whatever you enter, every single thing will be, you know, show you the processing time for it, which is really nice. Is that combined with the tracing stuff? So is it gonna so if I if I create if I turn on tracing, right? And then it's giving me my whole backtrace, am I also getting whatever we call it, benchmarking, right? For each of those mm-hmm. lines? Yep. That's pretty sweet. I'm going to go into my IRBRC and I'm going to alias that to vanity. And so I'll type in vanity <laughs> and then it'll tell me how fast all my stuff is. <laughs> I, well, what uh, else is coming I, to Ruby 3? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I saw one thing that I saw that I thought was really nice in, in the article that, that they kind of spawned this particular interview was that IRB is getting colors now. I don't have to oh, yeah. hire something separate to get colors. That's a, that's actually in uh, 2.7. So if if you're already on 2.7, you should have colors. <laughs> nope. I'm part Not of the yet. skip crowd. Skipping from <laughs> 2.6 to 3. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah, well, one, we, we did, did, we did this on a specific for that. Go ahead. No, you I believe it's turned on by default. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. But w- one other thing I will note, at least with Ruby 3, actually it's 2.7, was the uh, the inline documentation. So if you just double tab while you're on a particular method name, it'll give you the documentation in the context, kind of like a man page. Oh, nice. Uh, and, it, and it does that through rdocs. So I don't know if anybody else here has a gemrc that doesn't include documentation when uh, you install gems because it takes longer. I used to have that. <laughs> dash, dash, no, dash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've turned that back on now. Because it's so great to see, you know, tab, tab, how does this method work? I use that all the time now. Well, yeah, because you had to use the command line utility to get rdocs before or open up some kind of wonky web interface and it just was never worth it. Right. But if it's in line when I'm working, that makes a lot more sense. Yep. Because because re- to be frank, the only good docs readers were all web browsers. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. whenever whenever my internet goes out, I have to be like, oh, and then like go re-remember how to get my docs working locally again, like for the three hours that it's on. Yeah, or get it on the fifth try. Oh, oh, these are the right parameters. <laughs> yep, that's super cool. 
Yeah, it's also, you know, if you use a higher level like documentation app, right, it, uh -huh. which has some nice things as well. Like if you, I use Dash as an example, but it has some drawbacks and that you have to know what you're looking up. And so it's, it's nice having it in the direct context that you're in without having to go, okay, let me go to this other app, you know, look up this context, this method. Yeah, I uh, I stopped using Dash because I didn't like paying for it. When <laughs> I felt like my web browser version was better. It just this this is kind of what I meant. But the web browser version is weak whenever my internet goes out. So right, Catch yep, twenty two. I don't pay for the Dash. I just wait for it to load. <laughs> so you mentioned the banner thing that that kind of like started you down this road. Were there any? Were there as in? As somebody who likes my console to look aesthetically pleasing, you know, were there any things that you were just like, oh yeah, now now I do this all the time, customize my RB shell, and uh, everything is you know pink and green or something. I don't know. I, uh, well, I have a like, lighting. I, I shouldn't say that. I sure. Like aesthetically pleasing stuff, and then immediately pick those two colors in conjunction. But <laughs> <laughs> I have a thing with lightning bolts. Uh, I, my you know starting prompt is a lightning bolt. It tells me I'm in IRB. That's kind of nice. My, I, I used to, for the longest time, use... There's a Oh My Zosh theme that has a cloud. And when you have changes in uh, your Git repository or in whatever repository you're working with, it'll show a lightning bolt to tell you that there's changes made so you know whether you're clean in a clean state or not. So it's just fun. That's cool. It, it was kind of interesting making the custom prompt because uh, I was just, you know, playing with it, seeing what you could do. And so I, I had actually picked up the quoting. So what, when you're in different modes in IRB, so example, like in a string, and you have a string open in line, that basically is, has a signal to IRB to style it differently. And so, I, you know, I wrapped it in the quotes icon. <laughs> so that like an emoji quotes which was kind of interesting to, to use on a regular basis for a while. <laughs> so I definitely will be using some emojis in my prompt in, for, for a while now. <laughs> nice. I was trying to figure out how to get an X-Wing on there. <laughs> hey, that, it's possible. Real emoji? Probably not. I don't know. There's probably everything in the emoji space, what am I saying? You might be able to find an emoji font that has it. You know, it's like a, it's the smiley emoji, except it's, I don't know. There's probably a power line font out there with it in there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, very cool. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. You mentioned, yeah, that you kind of got into this because you you saw somebody else doing some stuff with it. Um, what's the story as far as like you learning this stuff, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's a bit of a journey there. And, you know, it didn't just like, you know, upload to your brain, right? So, so what was the journey there? And how did this kind of get implemented over time at work and things like that? Sure. I had dealt with IRB customizations for a long time. So I was familiar at least with the notion of IRBRC and, and being able to kind of customize small things. But I didn't know the extent at which you can do it. Like probably another topic of conversation or blog posts is the 
the history itself of IRB and you can kind of save those histories in as files. So you you could in essence, and that's kind of where I'm going to go next with some of our servers is to customize the IRB session per user. So they all have their own history, especially when you deal with a, a shared server setting. Uh, you run into a lot of, oh, you hit up a few times and you're scrolling through somebody else's history that's sharing the session yeah. with you. And so that that's an easy fix, scoping to a particular file. And so it started, you know, just small realizations over time of, oh, hey, you can do this, you can do this. And then finding the actual need was we have we have these hack days at Doximity where the whole team will split up and work on some anything in particular that could help be useful for the team. And one of the problems we had was this auditing in that our auditing would be had to be explicitly set anytime any user logged into a, a IRB session or Rails console. And so, you know, sometimes it would be forgotten, the auditing would get missed, you know, get lost, and we'd have to go back and readdress those data concerns. And so it, somebody was like, hey, it would be nice if we can just automatically do this. And, and that basically is what started me down this rabbit hole to begin with. Is that possible? <laughs> One. And there were some prerequisites to that in that, you know, how do you know what user in the system is related to the user that logged into the server? We happen to have some, you know, formalities in place that lined up those user names. So it, it ended up working out really well and, and being easier <laughs> than was expected. And then, so as you go through and once you have a custom Rails console, it makes you think, oh, well, what else can we put in here? What other, you know, Doximity specific customizations can we inject inside the Rails console limitations? You know, how can we add restrictions? things like that. And it becomes very easy once you have that place, that source of truth to kind of make those customizations. And I, I work in the terminal almost exclusively. <laughs> That's kind right, of why I... Vim, right? Yeah, because Vim. But more so, I, I have a very elaborate Tmux setup as well that I've just grown comfortable with. And so I try and do as much as possible. I don't like le leaving the console at all. <laughs> even I, I've been looking at a couple projects to do even code reviews from the terminal. They're not quite there yet. But that would be my my dream to just, you know, ne never leave. You know, I used to use, oh, what was it? There was a chat service for a while when uh, Campfire was around that allowed you to do that from the terminal as well. Maybe it was WeChat. Mm -hmm. But that would, that would be my ideal <laughs> environment. <laughs> so, uh, you know, playing around with IRB and being able to do as much as possible there you know, open up any files, you know, send things to the background when I don't need to use them kind of thing. It's just a very nice workflow. So gotcha. that's, that's kind of my foray into the IRB space was, you know, what is possible? What can you do with it? And uh, how can you make things easier to develop, right? Can I ask you about the Ripper? Sure. <laughs> so this is from the Hidden Gems Ruby article. The the Ripper, it says, is a lexical analyzer, and you run a you run the Ripper command on a Hello World, and you get loads of stuff out. How did you how did you uh, get into 
using that and what, what what are you using that for because that to me looks incredibly technical and obscure <laughs> so mostly it's for analyzing memory usage so with that instruction sequence compiler you can then use it to see how ruby is you know making those instructions on the low level and kind of it's a, it's a helpful way to debug how it's com compiling those instructions and Sometimes you can, when you're debugging a particular memory issue, you can elaborate on that using the lexical analyzer to see how it's constructing it on the back end. Got it. So if you if maybe you if you're calling in some external library that's uh, memory is going missing, that kind of situation. Yeah, something like that. It, it's mostly useful for really cross compiling. Right? What do they call it? Transpiling. I, I haven't used it for that. But I know what is it? Opal or a Ruby Opal? Mm -hmm. There was some kind of project yep, where yep. they're translating the Ruby code to JavaScript, as an example. So that's that's primarily the value of Ripper is its AST kind of generalization. So I, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Tree Sitter, which is what GitHub uses as their code hinting. So anytime you've you know been on GitHub in a code review and you've you know, hovered over a method name and it shows, hey, this is defined in this file. Uh, they actually use an AST called tree sitter that they've made with Rust. It's it's pretty wild stuff. <laughs> it is pretty cool. It doesn't catch all the all the dynamically named stuff or the dynamic calls mostly. But yeah. No, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean that's Ruby. Rails specific mostly. All those after commit <laughs> things that you're doing. Right. One of the things that I, I noticed in here was the switch from read line to reline. So does that mean that we're dropping the the read line dependency? Like I guess it's, I tried I tried to look that up and I couldn't find an answer real fast. I don't happen to you know if you I don't know. I, I unfortunately I haven't joined the Ruby forums themselves yet. I, I imagine that will come soon when I want to add a feature to IRB or something like that. But uh, so I don't know what they have plans for it at, at, at this moment from just the master branch of the repository or have they moved the main branch? I'm not sure, but they haven't removed it it's still there. So they at least have it backwards compatible. Uh, but yeah, that I mean, that the reline is really cool because mostly for the multi-line support. So if you paste it in, I don't know, 15, 20 lines of Ruby code, you can actually just scroll up and edit it right in place. You don't have to go and, you know, line by line, edit and <laughs> hit up again. It's it's really nice to work nice. with. Does it does it increase my buffer for pasting now that you're talking about pasting in here? Uh, I I can't answer that one. I haven't so played with that. I've <laughs> always had a problem with that when I'm like writing long scripts or something. <laughs> cool. So I'm kind of curious now that you've dived it's it's so funny because talking through this, I'm sitting here going, man, I really kind of just took this for granted that it just worked. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, yeah, now that you're... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that there was a, a few years back where I was looking at somebody had pasted just the lib directory of Ruby's repo. And there's a ton of Ruby files in there. And at first, you know, it's just like delegate class or something like that. Some simple ones that I could recognize. Uh, and then you realize, well, there's a bunch of other gems in here that are, I guess this is the core library, right? That's what's included. And that's kind of what got me to to IRB 
eventually is that, you know, there are all these cool things included in Ruby. And I imagine the same with Rails, right? Where there's just way too many features for you to know all of them, right? But if you just spend a day and, and poke around, you're like really surprising how much stuff is in there. And I'm kind of hoping to turn this into kind of a more longer form series on what's included in, in Ruby's, you know, core library. Because there is just so much, like like you were saying, you know, you don't even know, you take it for granted that all this stuff is there. You just open up an IRB session and do what you're trying to do in the moment and don't realize kind of what's all available to you. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm kind of aiming at next is you've done all this work to understand IRB, understand how it works, you know, dive into the feature set. What do you wish it had that it doesn't? That's a good question. I guess I wish it had more native integrations. Like, like a, as an example, you know, being able to use VS Code or something like that and, you know, hooking up IRB to the editor. Mm-hmm. So you can evaluate, you know, various things live from within the editor, which I know are kind of external to the Ruby source itself. But it would be nice to have kind of some more native things, even like a mechanism that would make it easier to make more more extensions to IRB. Like, say, for example, this JARD project, which I know is built on something that's kind of a, a competitor to IRB. But they're basically, they have a ton of modules that make it easy to do you know, X, Y, Z, it would be nice if there were support from the, you know, Ruby core team or or something like that, that could help expose what's available uh, and make it easier to extend mm-hmm. and say, hey, this is how it, you do it kind of thing. Right. It kind of sounds like IRB is giving you a lot of what you want already. I know it's, it's, it's not, hard to, it's not hard a to lot poke to any holes. For. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they already add extra features that I wouldn't have thought about. So, yeah, fair. All right. Well, anything else you all want to dive into here before we do picks? All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and shout out about some cool stuff. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. John, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I will. So I I just recently replaced my grill, my grill of over a decade. Um, it just, I replaced the grates a few times. Anyway, I've tried to keep that thing alive because... I had, it, it was one of those like double-sided, one half was gas, one half was uh, charcoal. And I was very happy that I got it and I got it for like 200 bucks. And so, you know, I got it like a decade ago and I'm like, oh, sweet. I have, I'm ready to spend $200 on a grill and like, every, like $200 will buy you like a little dinky thing that sits on the ground and 
you know, mm-hmm. you have to crouch down and use it. So I was like, oh, so I had to reevaluate a lot. And uh, I went around and dug around and event- I was just pretty angry that everything that I wanted to buy was like 600 bucks. But I eventually like found something that was pretty good. And I've been using it for like two months now. So I've been pretty pleased with it. I had to give up having one side charcoal and one side gas in order to get a good gas grill. Because uh, apparently they just... They just don't put those two together unless you're willing to spend, you know, a small fortune on it. But yeah, so I found like this nice gas grill that gave me like six burners and like didn't completely make break the bank at 350 bucks. So I was pretty pleased with it. I'll put a like link to it or whatever. But it also wasn't a deal because like there was a different grill that I really wanted that was at, like the $400 price point only. Like my wife was like, well, you need to need to think over it for another night and i was like but i have been thinking about it for like a month now and this anyway whatever the deal was gone by the next day so this one has stuck around for a while so at about that price point so that seems like this is probably its natural price point so yeah anyway got a sweet grill and it works pretty swimmingly for what it is so and now i just have to work on convincing my wife to let me buy a separate charcoal burner (laughs) so that i can do charcoal (laughs) stuff when it when I have like more time or something. So, right. So I'll link that. That's, that's my pick for this week or whatever. Been able, that's been very helpful because I, my wife does not like Mexican food and the number of things that I can cook that are not on a grill are pretty much all Mexican food. Cause that's, I, that's how what I grew up eating. So that's what I know to make. So yeah, my wife very much appreciates that I can grill some stuff since uh, we are dealing with baby things. Nice. All right, Luke, what are your picks? Well, I've got to pick my magic, haven't I? The uh, my Mac magic gem is definitely my pick of the week. What a marvelous gem it is! And uh, you but know, only how, version three point five or lower. You know, you know, how we were talking about um, JavaScript features kind of coming into to Ruby three. Well, now we've got kind of npm features coming into uh, the gem ecosystem, the Ruby gem system. <laughs> kind of, it's really, we're really, really taking our lead from uh, JavaScript at the moment. So I've linked to an issue on uh, GitHub where uh, some developers are saying that because this license changes to GPL, then everyone has to release all their source code. This really isn't true. This is this idea of a viral license was introduced by Microsoft in the early 2000s, and if you know, uh, you can go on Wikipedia and look it up. And it's kind of a slur used against the free source, free software movement, that that there is this kind of nasty license that if you include it in your code, then you suddenly have to release all your source code and your business is over. There is a license called the AGPL which has some restrictions on software as a service systems. But there is, no, there is no strange magic license that you introduce that suddenly makes you do things. And people miss, this, miss the point with free software a lot. They seem to kind of confuse it. The whole point of free software is that you have freedom. And if someone's making you release your source code when you don't want to, that's not really freedom. So uh, people need to calm down. On the on the GPL side of things, GPL is a great thing. It's built the uh, the computing infrastructure we have today. The MIT license is not so great, and uh, I'm not such a big fan. But if you don't believe me, look into it for yourself. Uh, so there we go. My pick of the week, my magic. Thank you for keeping Ruby interesting. <laughs>
Yeah. And so I'm going to pile on there because I was going to pick uh, similar. And essentially, there's an issue in the Rails repo. I think it was introduced yesterday, the issue. And so, yeah, my magic used a list of MIME types that was GPL licensed in the gem. And so because of that, yeah, it, it the, the whole thread is essentially a discussion over this uh, idea of viral licenses and, you know, how it does or doesn't ruin software, which I found to be mostly not helpful. Ultimately, there's going to be, you know, they're, they're going to talk, somebody's going to talk to some lawyers, they're going to figure out what they're supposed to do, and then they're going to fix it so that if you're using Rails, you don't have to worry about it. But in the meantime, yeah, just be aware that this is a conversation that's going on. I'm going to see if I can find somebody who is an expert on this stuff so we can do an episode on it, right? Because I'm not an attorney. I don't know how all this stuff works. I don't know what the implications are. But in the meantime, yeah, it's something to watch for sure. So uh, we'll put a link to the issue in the in the show notes. And uh, yeah, let everybody kind of follow up on that. But they did actually close commentary on the issue because after the first probably 20 or 30 comments, yeah, it just kind of devolved into people arguing over what it meant as far as this is good or this is not good. And ultimately, I think what we need to just see is what are the implications for the Rails community at large? And, you know, how do we continue to be able to write software the way we write software? Because a lot of these conversations about kind of the social structure of software and the legal structure of software are things that we don't really want to think about. We just want to think about writing code and enjoying, enjoying technology. So anyway, yeah, we'll get somebody on who can tell us what we have to care about. So yeah, so that's one pick. I was looking back through my Amazon history for some ideas on other things I could pick. One thing that I've really been enjoying lately, I have a soda stream, which is a carbonator. You can make your own soda. They also sell mixes. And then I just order drink mixes in general off of Amazon. So they have like different fruit flavors and stuff like that. I don't drink alcohol. So it's kind of funny because I get this stuff that people add to their alcoholic drinks that just are the flavors, you know, and we just carbonate that. So anyway, but I'm really liking it. They have an energy drink flavor and a cola flavor and a root beer flavor. And uh, they they don't have a cream soda flavor, but you can find one on there that is... I get the sugar-free flavors because I'm diabetic. So I'm going to I'm gonna pick that. I've really, really been liking having that. And so uh, that's something I'm picking. And then for the Dev Heroes Accelerator, one thing that's really been working out nicely for me lately uh, that I've been using to get people in and then get them the content they need, uh, I've been using Teachable. And I, I'm really liking Teachable. It's a terrific platform for just putting the videos up and giving people what they need there. And so I've been putting videos up on, hey, you know, during a coaching call, it's a group coaching call, don't always have time to dive into everything that everybody needs. But afterward, I can do a video on it, right? And then everybody has it. And so um, I've got some videos going up there, which is awesome. Probably going to turn it into a course at some point. People can just buy one off, right? And then if you want the, you know, the direct coaching, teaching, you know, you can go for it. But yeah, I'm really digging that. If you want to apply, you can go to devinfluencers.com slash apply and get that. I'm also starting a podcast for Dev Influencers. So if you're thinking, hey, I'm not sure how to grow my career from here, we're going to be talking about how to grow it by building an audience 
making connections through something like a podcast, in fact, specifically through a podcast. And I'm also going to be interviewing other people who have built audiences and influence in the dev space and talking to them about how they did it. And yeah, just giving you ideas about how that can be done, right? Because some people, what happens is they they kind of become senior devs. They realize that, hey, the job I have now looks a whole lot like the job I'm going to have in a few years. Not really what I want long-term for my career. You know, I want to keep learning. I want to keep growing. You know, I want to get paid more five years down the line kind of thing. And so how do I do that? They don't really want to go the architecture route. They don't really want to go the management route. And so where do we go? So you can go the influencer route, right? And it's a lot of fun because you get to meet people, you get to explore areas you don't get to explore other ways, and you still get to code. And so that's that's kind of what we're doing there. So anyway, long pitch, but ultimately I'm doing Teachable and I'm really enjoying Teachable. And then for the cart to sign people up, I've used all kinds of stuff, all kinds of membership software. I hate them all. I hate the shopping cart in Teachable, by the way. It sucks. But I've been using Thrivecart for, for all that stuff and I really like it. It is terrific. It has an affiliate system that actually works, which is awesome. And so if you're going to be selling stuff online, I highly recommend Thrivecart. So those are my picks. Valentino, what are your picks? Sure. The first one I'd definitely recommend any developer out there is uh, called Git Reflow. It's a tool I actually built a, a long time ago now that helps automate your Git workflow. So it creates pull requests automatically for you. It makes sure to uh, close out all your branches when you've merged down to your main branch. Uh, it does a lot of things that just save a lot of time when you do over and over again. So I highly recommend check that out. Another pick I have is for the, an app called BitBar. It's a, if you're using the Mac OS, it's a nice little uh, kind of menu bar genu- generator. So you can run scripts and show icons and various things on a periodic timer, which is kind of nice. So I use it as an example to see how many Docker containers I have up and how much CPU it's consuming because Docker is painful at that. And a, uh, let's see, I had one one that just escaped me. (laughs) Oh yes, uh, Twilio. Mm -hmm. Twilio is incredible. I used it not too long to, not not to shout out to Python, but I used it to automatically orchestrate a AWS server for my kids to play Minecraft with their neighbors. So all I had to do was send a uh, some commands to a specific Twilio number, and it would start firing off commands on AWS, which was really cool. So that that was kind of impressive how. Uh, Seamlessly, that worked, and their their documentation is really well, really well worded and and mapped out. Nice. So, uh, now I have to ask. My <laughs> kids love playing Minecraft, and they want to be able to play with their cousins, but we do not let them play on public servers on the internet because I do not trust who's going to be on public servers on the internet. So, how do I set up a private server that their cousins can get on, or you know? things like that i just put the link in the show notes that we can add is that what you're talking about valentino yep that's the one so awesome yeah it's it was a little painstaking to get set up and configured it 
I kind of hoped at some point to find some time to automate this so other people could just spin up their own AWS server that you can whitelist IP addresses uh, on the fly using Twilio app. So maybe I get to it. (laughs) Otherwise, you can... you know, go through the setup I went through <laughs> to get it all configured on your own AWS account. Looks good to me. It, it was it was really fun playing with uh, Lambda server and, and things like that to kind of just spin up, you know, EC2 instances on the fly. And uh, my goal was to just drive the price down as much as possible <laughs> per minute, which is where I got to a nice comfortable spot with uh, spot instances. So... Hopefully I can get back to it to make it easier for other people to kind of do the same thing. But right now it's just a a series of Lambda scripts uh, that just make it easier to spin up stuff. And how much does it cost you to actually run this? My monthly bill is maybe three to $5 a month. Oh, okay. I I feel like, yeah, on average it's around three. So, I mean, they use it regularly, so... It's definitely been the cheapest I've found, just not (laughs) time-wise. No, I like it. Because, yeah, my, I mean, especially with my kids, most of my brothers and sisters live pretty close to here. But even then, you know, they're connecting from their houses. But my wife's family in particular, she has a, a brother in Oklahoma, a brother in Texas, a sister that lives an hour and a half away, right? And so, yeah, it's just, it's not ideal, but yeah, they'd still like to be able to connect and, you know, go play in the same world. So, yeah, it's pretty great. Then, uh, so what I, what I ultimately did is uh, made a way for just some environment variables as, you know, the allowed admins to whitelist mm-hmm. IPs, which basically just become the parents, right? Right. And so then any parent that wants to be able to get their kid to join or, you know, to stop their kid from playing or anything like that, they could just text this number and say, hey, like, you know, remove this whitelisted IP for now. <laughs> and then it cuts oh, them nice. out of the server, right? <laughs> nope, that makes sense. Yep. Huh. So it, it's been really helpful, you know, just to help. I mean, it's hard because like you said, like, how do you trust any one of these servers it's outside of Minecraft's, you know, realms or whatever it is? Right. With, and, you know, that that is great, too. But then, like, any of their friends have to be in the realms also. And it becomes this thing of, okay, well, who's paying for what? <laughs> right. And then, yeah, the other question I have then is, it just, it keeps your EC2, so you shut down the EC2 instance, but it still saves all the data because it, it keeps yeah, the hard so drive that, around. I have all that backed up to S3. Right. That is how that works. So then... You know, as so when they turn it back on, all their stuff's still there. Yep. Okay. Because, yeah, they like to build towers and castles, and they'd be devastated if it disappeared. So. Oh, I know. <laughs> this is the sound of Chuck's weekend disappearing. <laughs> That's right. I have, I have three things to do this weekend. Now I have four. <laughs> but I t- I'll tell you what. The three things I have to do this weekend make me the hero with my wife, which pays off, right? And then the fourth one makes me the hero with my kids. And if I get it done this weekend, I get it done a week early for spring break. Boom. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll tell right. you what, Good. My, Minecraft servers are not that hard to, to get configured and spin up. So yeah. at least there's that for you. Yeah, my kids keep asking me to add 
what they're they're the extensions i can't remember mods to the server or to our setup at home right on the xbox and so that'd be nice too to be able to just yeah it's it's all about reducing that management time right like sure getting it set up the first time is fine the issue is like when you're going in there for the 20th time because you know minecraft is updated and your kids want this cool new mod and you're like trying to decide what dependencies are going to be an issue or not and you have to remember because the last time you logged in was six months ago (laughs) and now you have to like go read a million things and your entire saturday is gone before you finally finish with the darn thing (laughs) yeah yeah, luckily I haven't hit that wall yet. <laughs> my kids aren't yeah. as demanding with the mods. <laughs> well, I'll tell you too, though, like giving my wife a, you know, well, I'll just take away Minecraft and all she has to do is text a number to do it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty huge. <laughs> Boom. <Yeah. laughs> About delegating the administration of it to someone else. Yes. Ultimate <laughs> power. <laughs> yeah. All right, good deal. Well, I've asked you enough questions about that. Thanks for coming, Valentino. This was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a blast. Thanks for having me on. All right. If people want to find you online, I'm assuming you're like on Twitter or GitHub and stuff. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. T-H-E, codename V, the codename V. Find me on GitHub at codename V. Uh, I have a blog where I post about my experiments with embedded systems and Ruby. That's that's at least been what I've been writing about currently. And that's uh, blog.codenamev.com. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. And yeah, my uh, my kids' lives just got better because of uh, Twilio-powered Minecraft. There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Honestly, let me know how that goes because I've been the only one that's used it so far. <laughs> Will do. Yeah, you're going to get you're gonna get an email and it's going to be like, <laughs> this was so great. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.